Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, I thank you for joining me. This is the Loving Liberty broadcast and podcast. I'm Brian Hyde. All right, we have some pretty fertile ground to traipse across today. Uh, Among the things I would like to cover in this hour, I want to talk about an anti-politics movement. You've heard of anti-war movements and various uh, anti-racism movements and anti-misogyny. You know, there's there's a lot of movements. What if there was an anti-politics movement? I think the time is right. And I'm not just saying that because everything calmed down right before the big election next year, right? I mean, haven't you noticed how everything's just been getting, you know, calmer and more rational? Yeah, me neither. So we'll talk about the idea that maybe it's time in the same sense that we have an anti-war movement that's, you know, promoted to or devoted to promoting peace and and uh, at the very least minimizing violence among people. Maybe we need an anti-politics movement. We'll come back to that in just a moment. We're going to talk about the official misinformation regarding the Afghanistan war. I don't know if we've been handed our Vietnam papers, this generation's Vietnam papers, but it uh, it would appear so. And, and I got to tell you, one of the biggest indicators, at least for me, one of the things that makes me go, ooh, this must be a much bigger deal than I thought, is the fact that our, much of our mass media is absolutely silent. It's crickets out there. And I'm not saying you can do this on everything, but there there are some topics when the media is not talking about it, you should be paying attention because there's a reason they're not talking about it. They don't want to draw attention. Very curious. There's a new far left curriculum, by the way, that's being in, in do- adopted into our schools, transforming them from schools into indoctrination centers. Now, look, if you are if you're if you have kids in school, you've probably seen this to a small degree. There's more. There is much more coming. In fact, what was the I got to find this for you. There, there was a, a meme that I saw today that I thought conveyed a truth that, that really strikes home. And I have friends who will take me to task for this because they're going to say, Brian, you're bringing up these political wedge issues that don't accomplish anything. And I agree it can be made into a wedge issue. But listen to what this says. The gender debate is not a gender debate. It is a test. It is a test from the left to see who they can convince to reject and condemn reality for the sake of feelings. And they pose this example. Are you willing to teach children that men have periods yet? No? Well, then the left still has more work to do. Of course, this is going to percolate into our schools. I mean, come on, it's a captive audience. Of course, they're going to be taught LGBT history because, you know, this has been overlooked. Of course, this is going to be mandated. These are the things you must think. These are the things you must feel. It's just getting a little more open. And it's something that uh, I don't know that I don't know how many people expected this, but I didn't. But it's coming right out in the open and it's in the guise of, well, this is what the kids really need to learn. Look, I say this as someone whose wife teaches within the public school system. There are great people within the system. There really are. But the system is a system, and it can be played, and it can be, 
weaponized and agendaized according to who runs that system. I guess what I'm saying is keep a healthy sense of skepticism and, and don't don't let your guard down when you should be paying attention. A rotten system is going to give rotten results in spite of how many good people are a part of that system. Now, good people inside a good system, that's the goal we should be striving for. All right, let's let's drop into this. Uh, there's an article by Jeff Deist. On Mises.org, politics drops its pretenses. And I'm sorry for sounding like a broken record when I tell you that that politics is poison. But I really believe this to be the case. And the, the more I find that I can provide some distance in my life from politics, the less poisonous effect it seems to have on my day-to-day happiness. Now, some will call this naivete. Well, you're just sticking your head in the sand. You're just you're ignoring things you don't like. And I, I'll grant you, you could definitely see it that way. I choose to think of it more as I'm becoming more aware of things that don't add real value in my life and turning my attention away from those things and toward things that do. Now, if that sounds like a bad idea, then, you know, so be it. But to me, that seems like a good way to do things. And the way politics is getting right now, um, I think more people are probably looking for a solution, but maybe aren't sure which direction to go. Jeff Deist starts with the question, can the increasing politicization, let me try this one more time, politicization of life in America be stopped, or for that matter, even slowed? He says, to be sure, average Americans do not want this. Most people prefer not to lead overly political lives. Beyond perhaps voting once in a while and grumbling about taxes or potholes, he says most people prefer to work on family. Or that's they put their focus on work and family and hobbies and sports and a million other pursuits instead of politics. So we watch the game instead of attending the Tuesday night city council meeting. But he says increasingly we all feel the pressure drawing us inexorably into a highly politicized world which demands that we take binary sides on Trump, impeachment, abortion, guns, climate change, and far more. And Jeff Deist says this politicization seeps into our jobs, our family lives, and neighborhoods, places of worship, social interactions, even our sports and entertainment. But he says the most salient feature of national politics in 2019 America is its lack of pretenses. The two political Americas represented by the red and blue teams no longer pretend to share a country or any desire to live peaceably together. Much has been made of this cold civil war on both the left and the right, and much of what has been made is probably overhyped. Americans are, after all, materially comfortable, soft, addled, diabetic, and rapidly aging. The over-65 population set to double in the coming decades. Hot civil wars require lots of young men with nothing to lose who are not busy playing Fortnite. But he does point out the overall mood of the country is decidedly hostile and suggestive of irreconcilable differences. And he asks, so how does our political system address this? By throwing gasoline on the fire in the form of another national election in 2020. That looming contest already tells a story, and it's not about healing or coming together. Today, the political class is more open about its desire to hurt and punish opponents. In fact, revenge and punishment feature prominently in the political narratives that fill our media feeds. 
Hillary Trump, Hillary, oh, that was a slip. Hillary Trump, no. Hillary Clinton recently quipped that maybe she should run against Donald Trump in 2020 and, quote, beat him again, openly positioning her personal vendetta as the rationale for seeking the presidency. The issues, such as they are, take a distant backseat to her more pressing goal of defeating both Trump and his voters in a visceral way. Her 2020 candidacy, should it materialize, will coalesce around revenge. Voters failed her not once, but twice in 2008 and 2016. Her campaign, almost by necessity, will be a scorched earth exercise in revenge against the deplorables. Now, her potential Democratic primary rival, Elizabeth Warren, meanwhile, appeared last week at an LGBT equality town hall organized by CNN for the express purpose of further politicizing sex and sexuality. So much for pre-political rights. In a response to a softball question about gay marriage, likely planted, Warren sneered that a hypothetical religious man should marry a woman, quote, if he can get one. Now, needless to say, the audience loved it, which tells us less about Warren's safe vanilla views than it does about the setting and mood of attendees. Identity politics is required, not optional. Now, Jeff Deist says these presidential aspirants, like Trump, no longer care to maintain a facade of representing all Americans or smoothing over divisions when elections are over. Nobody runs for president to represent all Americans. And of course, nobody could in a far-flung country of 330 million people. Candidates who give lip service to the media, as Tulsi Gabbard and Andrew Yang have, gain little traction in the media-driven blood sport. He says the presidency is about winning either red or blue America, not both. And presidential candidates will be far more open about this in 2020 and with their hostility for the Electoral College. And he reminds us they're in the business of winning at all costs, not persuading. 51% of the electorate will do, and the rest deserve to suffer for not going along with the program. Dang. I wish I could disagree with him on that, but I, I think he's actually right. We'll come back with Jeff Deist's article here in just a few moments. You may have some thoughts you would like to add. Do so at 801-331-8113. Again, 801-331-8113. We'll take a quick break. We'll pay a couple of bills. We'll be back on Loving Liberty right after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service, 801-331-8113. Again, 801-331-8113. I'm sharing with you an article from Jeff Deist. This is from Mises.org. And he talks about how politics is dropping its pretense. You see it. I see it. I mean, come on. This is not a secret to anybody who is, you know, who still has a, col- a pulse and can fog a mirror. You, you could figure out that, huh. You know, people are not getting along better. I, I can't remember the last time I saw people dancing arm in arm in the streets together. It just doesn't seem likely to happen. However, that shift in attitude that needs to take place 
is not going to happen as the result of an election. And what I'm asking you to consider doing here is maybe consider unhitching your emotional well-being to politics or from politics and uh, see if there's something else that could actually make life a little bit better. I actually have a terrific essay from Paul Rosenberg. I'm going to share a little bit later on in the hour. But going back to Deist's article, one of the reasons that he's pointing out that this, the contempt and the hostility of the political class is becoming so much more open. They're not even bothering to try to like us at this point. It's like, look, you're in the cheap seat, says AOC. You know, we're going to force you to do what, what you're supposed to do. But people are getting fed up, and it's not just here. As the article points out, the standard explanations and justifications for politics are breaking down. Democratic consensus and needed compromise and good governments were always empty bromides. But he says today, our political overlords understand and pander to an altogether different mood. The Trump presidency, like the Brexit vote, was never accepted by the same elites who spent this early 21st century gushing about the sanctity of democracy. The entire pretense for democratic politics, ostensibly the peaceful transfer of political power and the consensual organization of human affairs, now gives way to new and uncomfortable questions. What if we can't vote our way out of this? What if the structural problems of debt and entitlements and central banking and foreign policy cannot be solved politically? Here's a good one. What if the culture wars are unwinnable? What if we have reached the end of politics as an instrument for keeping American society together? I mean, these are some of the most probing questions I've heard in a while. Why don't any of our top talking heads on the media talk about this? You know, and why, why isn't the news media itself approaching the issues from this angle? Oh, man, there's celebrity worship we could be doing. I like Jeff Deist's conclusion here, though. He says, democracy and politics will not alleviate our problems. Only committed individuals working in the intermediary institutions of civil society can. Democratic elections can work locally and in small countries or communities. Switzerland's system of express subsidiarity comes to mind. And he says, and clearly the best hope for America's survival will come through an aggressive form of federalism or subsidiarity. Subsidiarity. One that will dramatically reduce the winner-take-all stakes of national elections. But he says mass democracy in a country as large as America is a recipe for strife, bitterness, endless division, and much worse. You can feel it coming to a head. Jeff Deist says, Murray Rothbard said in Power and Market that ballots are hailed as substitutes for bullets. But in modern America, politics leads us closer to war, not closer to peace and justice and comity. Why should we accept weaponized mass politics when we have civil society, markets, and non-state institutions? And this is where he makes the call. We need an anti-politics movement just as surely as we need an anti-war movement. I know this is a hard thing to picture, especially as you look at uh, the approaching 2020 election. And I don't mean to wear my welcome out with you by suggesting what if, what if that election for all the attention that it will be getting, for all the media coverage, for all the 
millions of man hours that will be spent discussing and dissecting and analyzing and trying to figure who will have the advantage, who, you know, won't. I mean, you know, I'm leaving the impeachment thing aside, but just the struggle for whose will will prevail in 2020. We're told it is the most important story that can be. And all I'm asking you to question is, what if it's not? What if it's important, but it's not the most important kind of thing that we could be focusing on? What then? I know it's an uncomfortable thing to ask. And I see, I, I, well, I hear more than I see. I, I hear the fear in people's responses when people say, you know, uh, maybe I'm, I'm not convinced that, uh, you know, elections are really going to solve anything. I hope you understand. I'm glad Hillary Clinton didn't win. I'm glad Donald Trump won in her place, but I can't say that I, I'm just thrilled. I think why he's the he's the best thing to ever happen to this country. I do get a sense in many ways he is a guy who is trying to do the right thing. And I think in spite of the incredibly corrupted system that he's up against, one which has attacked him since before he ever got elected and has, has just doubled down on those attacks every moment since. I mean, that's that's a tough thing to face. But I don't believe for a minute he's the monster that they've been trying to convince us that, that he is. I think he's a flawed human being, just like the rest of us. And I think he has to be bound down for mischief in the very same way that the founders intended all Leaders throughout our history would be bound down by the chains of the Constitution, limited to what proper government should do, not just by legal considerations, but by moral considerations. Is it right for government to step into this arena? By the way, this is something I'm going to be discussing in some detail with Eric Peters about an hour from now, an hour two of the program. So I would encourage you to make sure and tune in. By the way, Eric has some fascinating insights on what's happening in Virginia yeah, you want to talk about the, the, the balance of power and sorting out the political pecking order? Uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia right now is seeing, uh, I haven't seen uh, an uprising of defiance like this in a long, long time. They are throwing around the word militia and not as a cuss word, but actually as organized armed citizens to protect, are you ready for this? Their sheriffs. If the state were to try to come in and remove their sheriffs from office. How's that for crazy? And I don't mean in the sense that they're nuts. I mean, just that the times have come to this. Here you have state leaders. And when I say that they are just straining at their lease, their leashes and frothing at the mouth to get that legislative session open so that they can impose draconian gun control laws and they're promising we're going to make it stick the law is the law if it's passed you have to obey it why we'll bring in the national guard i guess they've never heard of a little thing called posse comitatus or understand why that was implemented in the first place but the citizenry is standing up and saying enough when you have sheriffs openly saying i will deputize thousands if necessary to negate this law. I mean, look, thank goodness we're dealing with people who are rational here. 
violence isn't the first resort of this armed citizenry, nor should it be. But they are definitely putting their politicians on notice. And I don't know if those politicians have the... um, I don't know if they have the ability to set their pride aside long enough to listen to reason. I think they're willing to push this. And I think the people of Virginia are willing to say, you know, we will go no further than right here. We live in fascinating times. I also think we live in times where we need God's guidance more than ever. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back after these messages. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. 801-331-8113. I know we gave the uh, phone number in the last segment. And honest to goodness, I saw you calling. I tried to answer. And for some reason, my phone interface needed uh, what uh, what we euphemistically in the business refer to as percussive maintenance. Okay, that's a, that's a n- not so nice way of saying. I shut it off, turned it back on. The phone is working. Is my point. If you'd like to join the conversation, eight zero one three three one eighty one thirteen. So I want to share with you this uh, essay that arrived in my inbox this morning from Paul Rosenberg. Consumption doesn't make us happy. And maybe it's because of the season, you know, as everybody's, you know, rushing around and getting the right material things together for a a perfect Christmas. And, you know, we want to make sure that uh, fourth quarter spending is up where it's supposed to be so we can have nice things. I love the message that Paul Rosenberg has to offer here. And it's probably speaking loudest to me, but I will tell you that uh, what he has to say about um, viewing consumption as the ultimate end always ends in unhappiness. We'll come back to that in just a moment. 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Hey, I can comment on both those, Brian, before before you even get through the second article, because I think I know where he's going to go. But um, Yeah, but what's, first, what's your take? Well, first one I wanted to comment on was the article uh, regarding, you know, uh, the idea of politics not being the answer. And I've been saying that for a long, long time. In fact, um, People need to wake up and get their heads out of the sand and understand that a lot of this stuff, I wonder how much, you know, and I, this is going to be very unpopular among Trump supporters and among Democrats as well, but I don't care. I've never stra- strayed away from that kind of stuff yet. What if this whole impeachment stuff, what if this whole fight between Trump and the Democrats was just a show and there really wasn't a fight at all? And the reason I say that is because if you ever notice how they fight like cats and dogs, but when it comes to things like treaties, like the USMCA, suddenly now we're all getting along, we're all cooperating on that. And the reason I say that is because, now I, I'll be the first to come forth and say where I stand on all this, I'm in favor of free trade, but not managed trade. These these treaties that they're coming up with are managed trade. That's what they are. They're, it's going to be a, uh, a, a bureaucracy managed uh, trade is what it's going to be. You're going to set up a whole new bureaucracy, 
And so basically what you have here, what I'm really coming to the conclusion of, is that all this fighting going on is really just to distract everybody from the real thing. And then all of a sudden you wake up one morning and you hear, oh, yeah, by the way, Trump and the Democrats all cooperated. Now we have the USMCA. Oh, yeah. See what I'm saying? No, and, and I appreciate you distinguishing between managed trade and actual free trade. Because I think a lot of people think, well, as long as the government involvement's minimal, you know, it's not that big a deal. It is a big deal. It's what keeps it from it being is. free trade. Yeah, and in this case, it's going to be even worse because it'll be a foreign bureaucracy that will be deciding for everybody what even goes on here in the United States under that under that agreement. So, you know, this this underscores why we're in the mess we're in because too many people are standing up on one side or the other. Yay, 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 Donald Trump, or yay, 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 the Democrats. And meanwhile, the whole country is going down the tubes, and um, and everybody's totally blind to the real issues that's going on. And, the, and of course, this impeachment thing gives the media something to distract everybody from what's really, really going on. And so now the other comment I want to make on the issue of consumption, this has been a beef ever since I you – know, I'll be the first to admit, when I was a kid – I was like everybody else. I like to keep up with the Joneses, okay? But as I've gotten older, uh, I realize that that's not all, always a great thing. And I'll give you a good case in point. Uh, those who have iPhones, I don't know if you have an iPhone or not, Brian, but a lot of people do. Yeah. Um, that latest update, iOS 13, was not a great idea for some people out there. In some cases, there were stories uh, I was reading on some of the forums how uh, it just totally bricked their phone where their phone wouldn't do anything. And one of the problems I've had, and as a blind person, I um, communicate quite a bit with some friends of mine that are also blind, and I've been telling them for years, you don't have to keep up with the Joneses to have a good working phone. Turn off that auto-update stuff. And even if you do, they're going to nag you about it, but you still need to turn it off and not just allow these updates to come down automatically because they usually break things, and it's the same on the Windows side as well. Basically, what I'm saying is that they, the system that we live under right now has fed into this through planned obsolescence. In fact, uh, I don't know if you can still find it or not, Brian. used to be online. I don't know if YouTube has scrubbed it or not, but... See if you can find a video called The Light Bulb Conspiracy. And I've heard of that one. Yeah, look that up, and I urge the listeners to look that up as well, because it'll show you how the idea of planned obsolescence was not only toyed with back in the 30s and 40s, but is now in full swing. Like, for example, your printer quits working. You assume it broke. Okay, you put new cartridges in it, nothing. The printer doesn't work. Well, in this uh, video, they showed a... Uh, I believe this guy was over in Russia who figured out that in his printer there was a chip in there that shut down the printer after a certain length of time, and he wasn't supposed to know that was in there. Well, he figured out a way to revive, you know, to reset that chip so he could revive his printer again. And so the point I'm making is that for all of you out there that are into this keeping up with the Joneses, there is a system out there that feeds on this through what's called planned obsolescence. I mean, remember, Brian, when we were all growing up, I remember the idea of the Maytag guy. The Maytag washers were so dependable. The Maytag, the Maytag guy was supposedly bored with nothing to the do. The loneliest guy in the world. Yep. Yep. Not anymore. Uh, your average washer, dishwasher, uh, whatever, usually on average is pretty much 
set up to last on an average of four to five years, and that's pretty much it. And uh, um, I mean, just like in our case here, we have a, a, a whirlpool system here, and I hate the thing. Everything, if you if you if you tear into the thing, everything they could make plastic on it, short of the case, is all plastic. The gears are plastic that drive the you know that drive the um, the uh, you know the the uh, you know the the mechanics of the washer. It's all plastic. And they're designed to break after a certain length of time. This is what I'm saying about this planned obsolescence. Not only does it breed unhappiness, I don't like it because I, when I get used to uh, managing something a certain way, I want to do something a certain way, and I don't want some software vendor or somebody coming along and breaking it. When I'm comfortable with something, as long as it gets the job done, I want to get the job done. I don't want to have to be trying to figure something out because some guy figured that there's a better way and their better way winds up being a worse way for me. And so, yeah, it does breed unhappiness in more ways than one. Well, sounds like you are ahead of the curve, my friend. <laughs> well, I keep yelling about it. I don't know how much good it'll do, but uh, I always tell everybody that I know, and I'll tell your listeners as well, if you have an iPhone, and I, an iPhone is the one I know the best, but probably the same way on Android and some of these others as well. If you have auto updates turned on, I would turn that off and always wait. Never be the first guy on the block to download an update, for example. And I use the the issue of the phones because that seems to be where we have the most uh, prevalent planned obsolescence going on. Um, Don't allow them to just update it indiscriminately because you may come back to it and you may discover that something that you like really well and that you're used to is broke and then you can't use it no more and i get sick and tired of this i you know it's it's getting to the point they're going to use this brian this is a way and i think the software industry is going to be the leaders in this this is how they're gradually setting us up for the planned uh redefinition of property from private property to property owned by the corporations you may spend pretty bucks on it you may spend tons of money on it but in the end it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to them. And Apple's even come forth and as much as admitted so. And I'm wow. thinking, wait just a minute, I spent all that money. Um, it's just rent. You know, yeah, if I want to throw it across the house, it's my, it's my phone, you know. <laughs> Sam, thank you so much. You bet. That's all I got. Okay, appreciate the call. 801-331-8113. Let me share a couple of thoughts here from Paul Rosenberg. He says, we live in a culture that presents consumption as the ultimate end. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Party with the pretty people, drinking the good beer, get your husband to give you a car with a huge ribbon on it for Christmas, prove your love with a diamond, and so on without end. And he says it's been going on for so long that most Westerners don't see much else. But he says consumption, however, doesn't make us happy. Or to be more precise, it imparts no real satisfaction. It's all ephemeral, fleeting, temporary. Even and if and and when it's even obtained. You ever waited and waited, anticipated getting something, you know, that well, I'm going to get this new car. I mean, you're dreaming about it. You're sitting in church. Oh, man, I'm going to get my new car. I'm getting my new car. It's, it's filling your dreams at night, your daydreams at work. I'm getting a new car. And then you get your new car. And, you know, there's a thrill, obviously, you know, as you're first driving it around. It's so cool. But it doesn't take long. In fact, it takes a remarkably short amount of time. And suddenly it's, you know, okay, what's next? That happiness isn't lasting. And the reason it's not lasting is because it's, you know, 
It never should be based just on objects. We'll come back to Paul Rosenberg just after these messages. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in to Loving Liberty Radio Network. I'm Brian Hyde, and you can reach me at 801-331-8113. I'm sharing with you an essay from Paul Rosenberg, and this is about how consumption doesn't make us happy. And I think he has a point worth considering here. I mean, as much as we may look at, uh, you know, something and say, I really want that, when we get, even after we get the thing that we want, it's a fleeting moment of, wow, it's great, it's triumphant. I've told you the story of my friend who saved and saved to buy a Colt Python revolver. And these have never been cheap revolvers. They're always a very uh, well-made, custom-fitted handgun. And he got one plated in electroless nickel. I mean, it was a beauty. Saved for it for a long time. But he said when he finally got it in his hand, he bought it. He walked out of the gun store. And he said his first thought was, my life still sucks. <laughs> and I thought, how, what, a, what an incredible lesson there. The idea being there are some, whatever's missing in our lives can't just be filled with things. But we believe that it can. And Paul Rosenberg points out here what, what keeps people eternally seeking more consumption. Isn't the feeling that they're going to get from that good beer or even sleeping with the hot girl or guy, but the hope of claiming the prize. It's the imagination that they'll find magic. Whenever they get the girl, ring, car, house, job, jet, whatever. Now, he's speaking from experience here, not because he was a big, you know, uh, you know, mover and shaker. But he says because he was befriended and able to fall in with a fascinating group of older men when he was 15 years old. He says, as a very young man, I got to know mobsters and politicians, geniuses and maniacs. Doctors and bus drivers, millionaires and bust outs. And he says, and these guys let it all hang out in the workout room. Business problems, family problems, girlfriends, booze, drugs, people who had cheated them, political scams, bribery, all of it. He says, it was an education I couldn't obtained, I couldn't have obtained anywhere else for any price. Now, he says, the wild, a wild businessman whose briefcase sported marijuana, cocaine, and booze took me to sporting events, although I had to call my mom first to get permission. He says a professional football player became my friend. Millionaires told me their troubles. I experienced all of this and much more while I was in high school. So he says, please believe me that the dream babe, the dream house, and so on, will not make you happy. They will for a moment, but not for long. He says, I've watched that game play out over and over. More than that, he says, I've had a few of the dream things myself. Some of them are nice enough, but they will not satisfy you over time. They simply aren't the right vehicles for satisfaction. They can produce it no better than an apple tree can produce onions. And he says, here's a quote from Neil Cassidy, who had to be the number one party guy of the 20th century. He was the hero of On the Road, idol to multiple rock bands and much more. Quote, 20 years of fast living. There's just not much left. And my kids are all screwed up. Don't do what I've done. End quote. So Paul Rosenberg says, don't imagine that the advertised image will satisfy you. It won't. In fact, he says the illusion is a lot like cocaine. He says, do you remember the famous rat experiment 
where they gave the rat a shot of cocaine if it would push a lever, and then the rat starves to death because it will do nothing except push the lever? Well, he says, substitute modern man for the rat and the hope of consumption for the cocaine, and the model holds. Now, the cocaine is not actual consumption, mind you, but the hope of consumption. And in that hope, millions of humans spend their lives chasing images and dreams that will never satisfy them for more than a moment, presuming they reach them at all. Tell me that hits you the way that it hits me. How much time have you spent? How how much time have I spent thinking about, oh, man, one day when I have this, one day when I get to here, when my bank account says this, or I have these initials behind my name, or whatever it may be, that's the day that it's all going to come together. And you probably already know the, the reality is no. You learn to appreciate it, and you learn to enjoy it, and not take it for granted along the way. But there's never this moment you arrive at where, yeah, now everything's just great, everything's perfect. As Paul Rosenberg points out, the entire model, from the advertising complex to the hijacking of youthful hormones to dreams of status, it's all an addiction. And the people selling it are pushers. The supermodel will not make you happy. The billionaire will not make you happy. The mansion will not make you happy. The Ferrari will not make you happy. They cannot. He says some of these may give you a short burst of excitement and perhaps a feeling of triumph, but all are fleeting. So you're probably wondering now, okay, so what does satisfy? Well, thankfully, Paul Rosenberg includes that answer in this essay. He says what actually satisfies is knowing that you are a good and beneficial being. Now hear him out. We're not talking about hoping I'll be made good someday or implying I keep the rules so I must be good, but by actually doing good and beneficial things. By having, as a few old preachers used to say, a conscious sense of righteousness. He says in practice, this feeling, this recognition comes from production, knowing based upon concrete actions that you are a beneficial being. I mean, you see the difference here, right? It's not about just talking the right talk, but your actions show that you are a good and beneficial person who does good and beneficial things doesn't just talk about him. He says the satisfaction generated by accomplishment endures throughout all life. And they don't even have to be gigantic accomplishments. Hang out with an old carpenter or a bricklayer sometime. Take a drive through their hometown. Invariably, they'll point out the stores, houses, and factories they built. And each time they do, they'll feel satisfaction that they created things that blessed and served the world. And that satisfaction will remain with them through the end of their days. The same thing goes for raising good children and other real accomplishments. Can you see that subtle shift that he's making here? I mean, look, I admit it. There was a time when I would drive around with my grandfather through Rupert, Idaho, which was where he spent the majority of his life as both a carpenter and builder and building inspector. And it's true. He, he did get a sense of purpose and a sense of satisfaction. I helped build that restaurant and I built that church over there and I built this. And, you know, there were so many things that he built. And he wasn't bragging. 
He was taking happiness that his labor was something that still endured years later. That makes sense to me. That's, that's what real satisfaction looks like. So why is this important just now? Well, Paul Rosenberg says this is especially important just now because nearly all the fixes that come from the powers that be involve consumption. Reinvigorate your town with coffee shops and diners. More production, more production, he says, is, is seldom even considered. Now, he says there are reasons for this, but they're misguided and destructive. Consumption will never deliver what production does. And he sums it up by saying, without being productive, we degrade. Consumption isn't remotely enough. Now, this is where a lot of folks may want to hide behind some kind of false humility and say, well, you know, I'm just not skilled. I'm not an architect or a painter or a designer of any kind. I know. And that's, I, you know, I, I, I have to stop and think, okay, so, so how can I do this? How can I contribute in some way? But think back to a couple of the things he pointed out. What are you doing in the course of a day? And I'm asking this question of myself too, Brian. What are you doing in the course of a day that by your actions is showing you to be beneficial? Doing good, beneficial things. How am I helping people around me? What am I doing that's improving the world? Okay, now it's going to sound like a cop-out, but I'm going to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm speaking truth to the best of my ability. And I do consider that a part of what I do. That's, that's part of my identity for what it's worth. I want to be a truth-teller. I want to be a source of truth for people who are looking for it. But things like raising good kids, that's a real accomplishment. My point is simply this. Let me jump to it. There's something that is yours, your purpose, your mission, your thing that you alone are particularly well equipped to do. And, and it may be for some people, you know, their job is creating beauty. That, that's what they were born to do. Maybe they're artists of some kind, singers, songwriters, you know, people with the ability to paint or draw or to photograph or dance or write or whatever the case may be. Some people are born to, uh, to heal the people around them. Some people are born to liberate the captive. Some to, you know, proclaim truth. Hey, you know. Mere things aren't going to matter that much so much as a life spent doing those good things. I think the sooner we figure that out, the happier we're going to be. What do you think? Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.